So now get ready as I read 179 verses. It's actually 83 verses. I won't be reading it all to you, but I would like to begin and uh, read these read these first uh, 11 verses. After this, and that's after Saul had died and David had received news and David had lamented the death of King Saul, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into the, any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which one shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to those men, and he said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed his disloyalty to Saul. In other words, we, these captives, we have been the instruments of God's vengeance in your behalf, God's behalf, in behalf of you, David, for all the evil of Saul. And of course, David never viewed Saul as his enemy. And, and he absolutely rejected their religion, their religious pretense and their, and their pretended show of loyalty. And he ordered them executed as the cold-blooded murderers that... They were. Now you say, well, oh my word, pastor, that's great. I immediately see how all this applies to my life. <laughs> okay, I want you to open up page three in your program. And I want you to look with me at the, uh, at the outline in that program. And this is actually the outline of what happens in these chapters. And you'll see I use indentation very deliberately because these chapters begin and end in the same way and work toward the middle in the same way. I want you to notice this with me. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, David is anointed king of Judah. At the very end in chapter 5, 1 to 5, which we will we'll get to next week because that passage is worth its own preaching, but... In chapter 5, 1 to 5, David is anointed over king of Israel. So he goes from being king of Judah to king of Israel, right? Now you inset by one. You go down to chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and then we're told Ishbosheth is installed by Abner as the rival king of Israel. And then you go to the end, second from the bottom, 4, 1 to 2. Ishbosheth is murdered by his captains trying to defect to David, and those captains are killed. So you have David, David, Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth, and then you come into the middle section, and you have three different significant events that are recorded, and they all focus on Abner. Abner atta- attacks Judah, and he fails. Abner gains power over the house of Saul, and he fails. Abner tries to defect to David, and he's killed by Joab. That's what these three chapters are about And if you look at them, what really stands out in these chapters, or what I'd point you, your attention to, is the fact they don't center on David. In fact, they center on Abner. David isn't an actor 
at least not a prime actor in these chapters. They center on Abner. He's the actor, and he is David's chief nemesis. Think about it, what Abner did. He made, he made Ishbosheth the rival king to David. He went on the offensive and attacked Judah first. He consolidated control to lead David's enemies. But he was frustrated and he was defeated at every point. And none of that was due to David. None of that was due to anything that David had said or done. Joab in... Um, I'm sorry, Abner did have one success. His only success was to bring the tribes of Israel over to David's side so that David would become king over all Israel. But when he did that, even then, his ambition, his personal ambition for power was totally frustrated. And Joab kills him. And then Ishbosheth, that puppet king, and that rival king to David, he is killed. I want you to notice something else. This is a little, bit, a little bit like the book of Esther because just as David is largely absent from these stories, the Lord, the Lord is largely absent from the telling of these stories. His name does appear, Lord and God, but largely absent only once at the beginning, and I read it to you, when David sought God's guidance about where to establish his royal camp. Was there any serious engagement with the Lord? Only then. And it's left for us, it's left for us as the reader to see that it was God's sovereign hand that was behind everything. That God was over everything. Though he did not appear in any of the headlines. And I would tell you that today, in this world today, God is over, he is sovereign over everything. Everything that happens, even though he does not, his name does not appear in the headlines, even though his name is not invoked except for so often for personal gain and not sincerely, but for a pretense. So this passage is really very much for us. And finally, in chapters 3, verses 8 and 9, and chapter 3, verse 18, as you're coming down toward the end of this seven-year period, seven-and-a-half-year period, even Abner acknowledges the inevitability of David's reign because of God's promise, that it was God who was establishing this. And I'll read one of those verses to you later in the sermon. So what are we to make of all this as we look at it? What are we to learn? And I want to suggest to you today that the first and best commentary on David's life is David himself in the Psalms, always. And when life seems to be spinning out of control with lawless leaders, with intrigue, with violence, with the worship of idols, with the hating of God, when the horizontal, you know, human, social, cultural, when the horizontal, when all those headlines are, you know, basically secular. I mean, if God, there's no place for God in those. There's no belief and faith in God as the news, so to speak, is reported. What we find in David as a king of his people, or coming toward that, is that again and again he's singing God's praises. In the Psalms, he's teaching Israel to sing God's praises as well. 
He sang the truth of God that came out of his life. He he sang the truth of God that he had come to know deeply and personally. And he sang it to Israel so that Israel would know it, would share his faith. Because the truth about God was truth for all people, for every one of you to know and to experience. He sang the meaning and the significance of his life behind the headlines. His songs invite us to share that same meaning and significance by trusting the Lord also as he did. Because the truth is, at the end of the day, the meaning of your life and the significance of your life will not be about what you've accomplished or what I've accomplished or about your faith or my faith. It will be about God's faithfulness to us or our rejection of him. And the obvious, the Old Testament makes this so obvious, doesn't it, in the telling of the story of David? Because in the telling of the story of David, the Old Testament does not shy away from, does not become euphemistic when it talks about David's sins. And even in this passage, David sins. But we'll get to that in another sermon. I'll loop back to it. So here's what I'm saying to you this morning. What I'm asking you to do, I'm asking you to think about this history as we've outlined it, as it's in this passage, from the perspective of David and what, what, he, had, what he had seen, what he had heard, what he had experienced. And with that frame of mind, see if these verses from the Psalms don't underscore the great message of this passage. Psalm 25, verse 3. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed, but those who deal treacherously without cause will be shamed. None of those who wait for you will be ashamed, Lord. None of those. It is those who deal treacherously without cause. They will be ashamed. Isn't this what was proven to be true? shown to be true during those seven and a half long years of David's life. And what happened to Ishbosheth? What happened to Abner, the, the actor, the self-seeker, the, the power man, the strong man, the guy who got things done, who made things happen? What happened even to Joab, eventually, who in this passage, he hadn't mentioned it yet, David cursed because he murdered Abner. It was wrong of him to do that. What happened to the two captains who assassinated Ishbosheth while he slept? They were executed. What happened to everyone who dealt treacherously in this passage? They were all disgraced. And what happened to David, the one who was waiting on the Lord, waiting for the Lord to act, did not take matters in his own hands, rebuked or even executed some of his own when they acted took matters in their own hands. What happened to the one who waited for the Lord? Was he not fully satisfied? Was he made rich with joy? Was, Was he left ashamed and disappointed in God? No. No. You think with me for a minute. Wasn't this the outcome for God's son? 
for Jesus, our Savior. Was one stone left on top of another at the temple where he was rejected? Did the coalition of conspirators to destroy Jesus, did it succeed? Did the Lord bless Jerusalem? Who did God raise from the dead? Those who wait for the Lord, none of those who wait for him will be ashamed. But those who deal treacherously, they will be ashamed. Think of this verse from the Psalms, David's writing. Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Every evildoer in our passage is cut off. Everyone. In some cases, by their own schemes, they're cut off. In some cases, by one another, they're cut off. But David and his followers inherit the land. And this sight I give you from Psalm 37, 9, just a few verses later, is restated as the meek will inherit the land. And you know what Jesus teaches, our great Messiah, but blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, beginning with himself, as it began with David. Blessed are the meek, those who do fear God. They have nothing to fear about anything else. Here in our passage, there are two kings. There are two kingdoms in these chapters. The first is earthy. It's defiled and it's defiling. And the other one is of heaven, promised by God on his terms. Believe it or not, on his terms and only on his terms. And as I mentioned earlier, even Abner, as he finally changed sides, acknowledged the inevitability of this. In 2 Samuel 3, verse 18, he told the elders of Israel, as he was persuading them to come over, for some time past, you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people. It was inevitable. God is sovereign. And it's not just that God is sovereign. He was determined to raise David up to save his God's people. And how different when you read about David in these chapters, how different David was as a king. He was the one who did learn obedience through what he suffered, years and years of it. He's the one who refused to turn, return evil for evil. He was the king who looked to God to keep his promises. I mean, seriously, not just mouthing words, and saw God's guidance. And he was the one God raised up to draw, to unite, and to save his people. Now, we're going to see this as we go along, of course, many of you already know this, that David ultimately actually did fail in many ways. And the king, this is important, the king having sowed the seeds of failure in himself, sowed the seeds of failure for his nation. But even so, God expanded his promise to David 
beyond David's immediate reign, beyond God's, David's immediate life into the future through a righteous offspring anointed to reign forever. And I would say to you, as we think about this passage today, we need to think, we surely should think of Christ. It is prophetic. It does anticipate Christ. And the anointed one that God has given us is so much greater than David. God saving him from death was so much greater than any of his deliverances of David from death. His exaltation ever since is so much greater than David's exaltation was. And the salvation that Jesus Christ has secured for us and maintains for us is so much greater. So how much more should we say? Indeed, O Lord, those who wait for you will not be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously will be ashamed. David taught Israel through David's songs, his psalms. He taught them to take his faith as their own because God would be as faithful to the nation as God had been to him. Because why was God faithful to David in the first place? It was for the sake of saving his people. It was not just about David. And I want to say to you, regardless of what you're facing in your life or the treachery that you might feel uh, surrounded by or the difficulty of waiting on the Lord, how hard it can be to wait on the Lord, I want to say very clearly that with the same confidence in the faithfulness of God, whom Jesus called Father, Jesus went to the cross. And in this confidence that Jesus had in his father to be absolutely faithful to him, he saved us. Our king, Christ, testifies to us. You look at him, you look at his life, of, of, his, of God's faithfulness to him for us. And on this basis of God's faithfulness to Christ for us, we unite with Christ by faith. We take him as our Savior because God made him our Savior. And we live as confident in our King, as our King, as Christ. We live as confident as Christ in God's faithfulness to us. So as David saying to Israel, Follow the testimony of God's faithfulness in my life. What does the New Testament call Jesus? The faithful witness. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And all the truth of God's love and faithfulness and power to vindicate and determination to vindicate we see displayed in Christ is for you also. And it's an amazing thing to me that David recognized this was only by the Holy Spirit that he could teach the nation of Israel that this was true in relation to him. But oh, brothers and sisters, it is true for us in relation to Christ. 
Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord favors those who fear him. Those who wait for his loving kindness. The Lord favors those who fear him. Who wait for his loving kindness. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the person who seeks him. He's good. He is so good. So when you read 2 Samuel 2, 3, and 4... Again, I encourage you, in all of Samuel, the history books of the Old Testament, read them with a Christ-centeredness. See Christ in the passage. Learn from that about your Savior. How we need his word. You can relate to this in your life if you write it story of your life, how you were called, how you spent time in the wilderness, how God blessed you, how your times have failed, and experiences chastisement, perhaps been in exile in some sense yourself in your own life. I can relate to all of these things. And then he restored you. This is our God. This is what he did for David. To be, and, and, and the scripture holds that up as a mirror to all Israel, and that's exactly what happened to Israel. In the end, there's restoration. In the end, there's satisfaction. God has been so faithful to me, even when I slept, even when I wasn't lifting a figure, when I was just standing by, waiting and praying. God was faithful. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. He'll never be ashamed. Let's pray together. Father, we look at your word and we thank you so much for it. And we need to hear it, take it to heart today. Our headlines that we see are being acted out every day are horizontal. They are godless in their frame of reference. And yet the things you are doing and the things and the work you're doing even in our midst and in our lives, Lord, how you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. This is not a cliche. Give us the eyes to see it as David did, to experience it, as David did, and even more so, as we find this perfectly preserved in our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who remains for us the true and faithful witness to who you are, dear Father in heaven. Amen.